after six, we will uh, talk with the cast of the Cantina cast, the Star Wars podcast, the Star Wars experience celebration is in Chicago through tomorrow. And so we will talk a little bit about Star Wars and all the changes that have gone on in the Star Wars universe because change is inevitable. No matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, change is happening. But if you're like me, you start to wonder, well, how did how do things start to change? And how did how do things like Me Too all of a sudden get traction? How do things like Black Lives Matter, how do social changes, civil rights, voting, sexual harassment, all these all these things change? Or maybe in this day and age, in this political climate, you're thinking, how did, how do political movements start to change? Well, I cannot give you the answer, but the man who can is Professor Cass Sunstein. He is uh, with us now. He's the Robert Walmsley University professor at Harvard Law School. He also has taught law at the University of Chicago, and he was the administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs in the Obama administration. His latest book, How Change Happens, is on sale everywhere, and it is a fascinating, fascinating piece of literature. Professor Sunstein, thanks for taking some time to join me today. Oh, thanks to you. Pleasure to be here. So a lot of a lot of questions. And it was as I was reading through the book and trying to figure this out, I I kept thinking, well, where can we start? Because to answer to ask the simple question, well, how does change take place? There's so many levels to that question. Uh, I do want to start, though, with the role of social norms, because that seems to be a running thread throughout the book, that social norms really do have a role in in change. First of all, can you can you tell everybody what you mean by the social norms and then how are they so instrumental in change? Okay, so social norm basically refers to what you're supposed to do. So maybe if someone is acting inappropriately, you're supposed to grin and bear, bear it. Maybe if the schools are segregated, you're supposed to smile and go to the ones that you're assigned to. Maybe if um, uh, you're kind of not allowed to be uh, gay or lesbian. You are closeted. And a social norm might mean that if you like President Trump and think he'd be great or is being great, you might not say that because the norm in your community might forbid that. So sometimes norms can make for political correctness writ very large, meaning, you know, it's not correct to say one thing or another. And we all have that. Uh, sometimes norms weaken or soften. So there might be a norm that says that sexual harassment of some kinds is okay, um, even if it's against the law. And that norm might uh, start to collapse as people start saying, me too. Or maybe someone says, it might be Rosa Parks, I'm not going to go to the back of the bus. And that kind of starts to shatter the norm. And when the norm starts being shattered, then people start saying what they really think. And then societies can go whoosh, meaning they can start changing in a very rapid uh, period. Now, you mentioned in the book, though, that one person, and you, and you just referenced Rosa Parks, that one person is, it's usually very hard for one individual to make that change happen. Is it, it and let's take Rosa Parks, for example, is it because there were so many people already who were questioning that social norm that it just took one person to put a crack in that wall and then everything was able to flow a little freer? Because sometimes, as you mentioned in the book, one person speaks out and they kind of, they could be ostracized because they're not, they don't have enough support at that point. 
Yes, so the what you say is exactly right. So the key point is that um, uh, if there is something inside our heads saying that something is wrong or bad, if one person says publicly that thing is wrong or bad, uh, we might think, well, they're going to get in trouble or they're a crazy person or, or what's the point? It might involve uh, the environment. It might involve animal welfare. It might involve immigration in one way or another. And if we think that we're going to be just with one crazy person, then uh, what's the point of that? Rosa Parks is famous, and she's a woman of tremendous courage, of course. It's not just the case, though, that she um, was speaking for the hidden views of many millions of people. It's also that when she spoke for them, so to speak, by doing what she did, uh, there were a lot of other people who were doing something like that or who were unprepared to do it. So it's not like her action, though history you know, rightly celebrates it. It's not her action, you know, uh, rose a civil rights movement by itself. Uh, she needed more than a village. She needed a number of people who were basically there uh, at the time. So for one person, as you say, it's really tough. If one person is very visible, uh, Martin Luther King, of course, was very visible and kind of channeling what had been the uh, secret views of many people. And that's also true of the recent hashtag MeToo movement and the women's movement in the 1970s. And it's certainly true of the anti-immigration movement of the current period. And people have different valuations, evaluations of these movements. But what they share in common is that people get freed up to say what they had formerly thought was uh, kind of not allowed. Now, so that, that plays into another point you made in the book about social uh, social interactions. So if somebody is against one of these social norms in a bubble, it's not going to work. But as you mentioned in the case of the civil rights movement, there were a lot of people in different areas, but all kind of working toward the common good or with at least the common idea. And once those people all started interacting, then then the change was able to take hold more than if it was just a couple people here and there. Yeah, I'll give you a recent uh, bit of research. It's very simple, and it vindicates the point you just made, which is in, in, in Saudi Arabia, by custom, wives aren't allowed to join the labor force unless their husbands say it's okay. Now, young Saudi men were surveyed to say, ask, and asked, do you think it's okay if your wives work in the labor force? And overwhelmingly, they said, they said yes, that's great. I'm completely for that. Then they were asked, what do they think most men like them think? And overwhelmingly, they said, oh, most men like me think it's a terrible thing. So they privately thought wives working outside of the home is just fine, but they publicly, including in their family, said it's not fine because that's what they thought the norm was. Now, here's the kicker. They were informed that the research showed that most young Saudi men think it's fine for wives to be working outside of the home, and that information by itself produced a very large spike four months later in the number of people people, that is wives, who are applying to join the labor force. The norm collapsed once people learned that people didn't actually, actually agree with it. And that little research tells us something about what happens in uh, social movement small ones. It tells us something about when uh, products start to take off, when people think, you know, maybe organic food, it's okay to like organic food, or when they think maybe it's, it's just a fine thing to support a political candidate from South Bend uh, who's gay. 
or when they think there's a former businessman who's kind of loud, but he might make America great again. And so long as I know that a lot of people like that uh, think something like that, and they're not that different from me, and they're speaking out, then they feel they can they can do that. And then we can see a really dramatic movement in a matter of weeks or months. How does this differ then from when we talk to young kids about peer pressure? It sounds it sounds like these are similar concepts that if I'm if I'm worried about as an adult what the social norm is and I'm going to stop myself from speaking out about something because I think uh, you know, oh, a lot of people aren't uh, aren't thinking the same way, am I much different than an adolescent who doesn't want to wear a certain kind of shoes because nobody else in school wears those shoes? I think it's, it's it overlaps, so it's a, it's a great question, but it's a little bit different. So, if you think in your head, you know this 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 practice is wrong. It may be a practice that's unkind or cruel or something, uh, but the social norm is the practice is fine. Then the problem is that you're not free to say what you think, and that's a precondition for many of the social movements that we've observed over the last fifty years. It's actually a precondition for the American Revolution, where many people in the colonies thought British rule is awful and we have to get rid of it, but they needed a permission slip from the social support of lots of other people like them, mm -hmm. like the Saudi Arabia study, right. and then we had, you know, then we had America go. Now, for peer, peer pressure, it might be that there's some voice in the head of people saying, you know, I don't want to drink, but I'm under pressure to drink. Uh, if that's the underlying uh, uh, problem or issue, then it is quite similar to what I'm discussing, though it doesn't have the moral right. uh, feature where people aren't saying, you know, uh, they don't think there's a deep injustice being done. Uh, often peer pressure means people don't have a particularly strong conviction one way or the other. Is it good to stay up till 10 p.m.? Is it a great thing to be out at night till midnight? They might not think it is or it isn't, but if the peers are either doing it or not doing it, that can greatly affect what they are going to choose to do. Let's. Uh, we've, we've talked about a lot of good change coming. We've mentioned the civil rights movement and uh, the end of sexual harassment or, or the, the attention being called to sexual harassment. But there's also, you get, you get some social or political movements that are not good, and yet, even though there's, there's people who I, I'm sure think these are bad, they still tend to get, they still seem to grab hold. Is it, uh, you, you had mentioned in the book about uh, suppressed beliefs and values and the, those getting oxygen. I, explain that phenomenon, because if, if something bad is able to come, come out, even though there's enough people staying against them, how can we, how can we either stop those, the bad movements uh, from taking hold or identify that these may be coming in the future? Okay, so there's a, a historical example that fits what you're saying, and then there's a current one. Uh, the historical example is the rise of Nazism, right. which was partly uh, a kind of permission slip given to people who didn't like Jews very much to talk and act on the basis of what they privately thought, and the uh, killings of Jews and others and Hitler's rise 
This is not a full account by any means, but it's partly just a permission slip that the social norm against anti-Semitism, it didn't just slip, it flipped upside down. So there became a norm for anti-Semitism on the that influenced people who didn't particularly dislike Jews. And some of the former Nazis interviewed in the 1950s were incredibly eloquent about this, saying, did we oppose Hitler? Who knows who opposed Hitler? Depends on the circumstances who was in the room, uh, what the norm was. And even then, if people said they opposed or didn't oppose, it depends on who they were talking to. Uh, a contemporary example, I think, is the rise of uh, racial um, uh, hate speech and uh, hateful action, which we've seen, it appears to have been documented by numbers, that uh, acts of racially motivated violence have spiked a bit in the last few years, and uh, stipulating that the data is correct, uh, it's probably fair to say that uh, recent unleashing, let's say, of white supremacist thinking by people who may not themselves really have much interest in white supremacy, but have been less um, uh, clamping down on the expression of white supremacist attitudes that has uh, contributed to very ugly words, and that's pretty bad, but worse than that to uh, actual acts of violence. Well, I want to, uh, we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to continue on this. And you talk a lot about tipping points as well. So where in, in the current movement, can we identify where, where the tipping point was? And can we identify just in any social movement where the actual tipping point is? Professor Cass Sunstein is my guest. He is the author of How Change Happens. You can find the book everywhere that fine books are sold. More with the professor in just a minute on 720 WGN. Brian Noonan, 720 WGN. Professor Cass Sunstein is my guest. He's the Robert Walmsley University professor at the Harvard Law School. He was the former, he is the former administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs in the Obama administration. And he also taught law at the University of Chicago. His latest book, How Change Happens, uh, is out now. He uh, is best-selling co-author, his last book, Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness. And Nudge comes into play in this book as well. But let's go back, uh, Professor Sunstein. We were talking about, uh, we had talked about uh, social and political movements that seem beneficial to the vast majority of people taking hold. We also talked about negative social and political movements taking hold. And I wanted to talk about the concept of the tipping point. We, uh, there, there seems to be that point in every movement. But for example, we were talking about the uh, current state of the increase of racial violence and uh, hate speech. And where, as we, as you look back and you track things with research, how do we identify a tipping point for something like that? Well, it's easy in the abstract to know exactly how it happens. It's a little harder to get uh, clear on in a kind of sea of events exactly what the right moment was. So let's talk about the easier one, if we might, at the beginning. Sure. So it, it might be that if, you know, take, a, take the question whether you're going to join some environmental movement. You might have in your head a, a concern about dirty air or about climate change, but you're busy. At what point are you going to join it? It might be that you're the sort of person who will join it if you see that it's starting to get some oxygen, but you need to see that first. 
if you are one of the people who join it once it's getting oxygen, that it might be that there are a lot of people like you, and so it's getting oxygen, and that is getting people like you. Then there's another group of people who need to see people like you going, and then they will go too. And you could do a little arithmetic to make this more clear, but after that third layer of people that have gone, it might be that's the tipping point, and then you're going to get uh, the Clean Air Act, or you're going to get people in Chicago, you know, very determined mm-hmm. to press the state legislature to to do something about air quality in in, in Illinois. So that, that that's how it goes. In terms of particular moments, I'll tell you one that was a really fast tipping point in the recent past. Alyssa Milano, uh, the actress, uh, tweeted uh, that if hashtag me too, and within 24 hours, 45% of American Facebook users had someone in their friends network who had tweeted me too, hashtag me too. So Milano, in that case, with the aid of social media, media, basically created what's probably the closest thing to a tipping point for the hashtag me too movement. 45%, that's astonishing, and yeah. it happened basically overnight. And once that happened, then uh, then women who'd been subject to sexual violence, uh, that was a uh, a big green light. And we can see with, with different movements, you know, uh, President Trump's success, there were key moments in the, in the Republican primary where people who liked him seemed to feel they had a permission slip because other people who liked, liked him, and he uh, is, is ingenious about this. He often points to the large numbers of people who think he's doing a good job or who are going to support him, and that's a way of creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. And uh, it's not quite a tipping point, at least at least an increase, which can eventually create a surge. So even if it's even if it's a movement that, uh, and I guess it's either when you're when you're in an opposition to any movement, you think, well, most people think like me. But something something where it comes to racial violence, where, where most people would say this is not an acceptable movement, and yet it's still it's still able to take take hold and it's still able to move forward. Is it because the people who have the social norm against that have just decided to be quiet and they allow this change to happen, or is it that the change? The, the what fuels the change is so strong that it's going to go against even commonly held norms. Okay, so the, this excellent question points to the fact that no nation is a single community of people talking to all of one another at the same time. We have a lot of subgroups and some communities, and with social media, it's possible to construct. Uh, uh, I think the technical word is azillion subcommunities. So you can have a you can have a subcommunity that is thinking something really ugly and awful, and they might have that in their head. It might be that they're crazy, or it might be they're they have some kind of ambient rage that is targeted on something, or it might be that they just have some conviction about white supremacy or something. Uh, if you are isolated in that, you might think, well, what's the point? Or I should be mad about something else, or I should do my job. But if you're able to uh, interact, uh, let's say, on Facebook with a bunch of others who think that, then 
you might have a green light to say what you think. And for a very, fortunately, a very small, in terms of the total population, a very small percentage of um, our nation, uh, there, there's, there's going to be action. And in any particular incident, we need to, you know, look at the details. But some of them seem to have this feature where people linked up with others who thought as they do. And they felt uh, both fixated on what might have been, you know, a passing phase of wild thinking, and it became not a passing phase, but eventually uh, a basis for killing somebody. Professor Cass Sunstein is my guest. His new book, How Change Happens, is available everywhere. Uh, Professor, if you can hold on during the news, I do want to talk to you about nudges. I also, in this day and age, it's become more and more of a thing. Partyism is something that you talk about in the new book, that and group polarization. So a lot more to talk to with Professor Cass Sunstein. The book, again, is How Change Happens. You can get it anywhere that you get uh, fine books. So we'll talk more with the professor on the other side of the news. It's 530 on 720 WGN. With that news, here's Pam Jones. Brian Noonan on 720 WGN. Talking with Professor Cass Sunstein. He is the Robert Walmsley University professor at the Harvard Law School. He's also taught law at the University of Chicago and is the former administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs during the Obama administration. His latest book, How Change Happens, is available everywhere. Professor, thanks for hanging on during the news. Uh, now, I mentioned earlier that your your last book was called Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness. Nudges play an important part in the book, How Change Happens, as well. First of all, explain to people who may not be aware, what exactly is a nudge? Okay, so a nudge is uh, something like a GPS device where you turn it on and it nudges you to take a certain route to get where you have said you want to go. So think of a nudge as something that respects your freedom of choice. That is, you can say, I don't care what you have to, you're saying, nudger. And it also cares about your preferred location. Where do you want to go? Uh, the idea of a GPS device is a metaphor as well as a nudge. So if you go by food and you're worried, let's say, about uh, uh, sugar or salt, uh, you can get information from the Nutrition Facts Panel, and that will be a nudge. It will inform you of things that are maybe concerning you. Or if you're concerned about calories, if you have a calorie count at McDonald's or Burger King, the calorie label is a nudge. Uh, so too, if there's a warning when you get medicines that says, you know, don't use it in certain ways or don't take more than two of the pills, mm -hmm. that, that's a nudge. It, it's not a law, it's a nudge. Uh, if there is uh, uh, in your workplace something that automatically enrolls you in certain programs that are, uh, we hope, in your interest, maybe a savings program, maybe something involving your health, uh, but you can opt out if you don't like it, that's a nudge. And when I worked in the White House, we did a, a lot of stuff involving disclosure of information or uh, helping uh, combat poverty that involved uh, simplification or uh, clear information, maybe for people who are using credit cards who might be fooled by uh, something that is either deception or close to it, a nudge so that they don't uh, end up with charges that are uh, something that just was hidden in the fine print. So all those things are nudges. 
And when companies are doing a good job, or employers, they are uh, nudging either customers or employees in a way that helps customers or employees have a better experience. Now, all those nudges that you mentioned sound like they would be effective. You're not going to take too much medicine. You're not going to get into credit card uh, a credit card abyss. All those are good. Are there nudges, and there must be, that are not that are not as effective? Well, they, there's a there's a possibility that the nudge won't be effective, and there's a possibility that the nudge will be uh, put, pointing people in a in a bad direction. So, a nudge that wouldn't be effective would be uh, like a, a, an advertising campaign to convince people to eat a lot of salt. Okay. I, I hope that wouldn't be a very effective campaign, and <laughs> if we're lucky, that wouldn't work too great. And we've had some things from government involving cigarettes smoking, and you might be hearing my dog bark. I tried to nudge him not to bark. Those dogs want to nudge you to to take them outside. I understand. Yeah, unsuccessfully. So there there are plenty of things that failed companies do to try to get us to buy things, and they try to nudge us so they don't work. And uh, our governments, I think in some ways this is a good thing, sometimes fail to nudge us in the directions they like. There are also some nudges that are effective, but that's not very good. So if people are nudged to um, uh, to smoke a lot of cigarettes, as has happened in American history, or if they're nudged to uh, take a lot of sugar-sweetened beverages, consume as much in the way of sugar-sweetened uh, sugar-sweetened beverages as possible, that uh, that could be a very effective nudge, but it's not making people better off. So are these? You mentioned you mentioned with the uh, the GPS analogy or metaphor that that it still gives you gives us as individuals our freedom of choice. Are these nudges ethical? Because you deal a lot with ethics and morals in in the book as well. I actually know a lot about what Americans think, and uh, what Americans think in this context is a pretty good guide for what's ethical, I think, and it cuts across partisan lines. So if people are being nudged in a, in a direction that's inconsistent with their values or their interests, it's not a good nudge, according to both Republicans and Democrats. So the first constraint is the nudge should better be like a good GPS is, uh, protective of what people's interests and values are. If you are automatically, let's say, uh, enrolled in a political party, that you're presumed to be a Democrat or Republican unless you opt out, that is offensive to the values probably of the vast Well, I know from data that's offensive to the values of the vast majority of Americans, even if they are members of the political party into which people are being nudged. People think that's no good. So it has to be consistent with people's interests and values. A nudge can't be motivated by, let's say, the self-interest of companies, unless it's also by good fortune, consistent with the self-interest of individuals. And certainly if it's the government, uh, the nudge shouldn't be in the interest of the current politician. It should be interest in the interest of the people that the current politician is privileged to serve. Nudges shouldn't be manipulative. They should be transparent and clear so that people can evaluate them. They shouldn't be hidden. Uh, you may know that uh, we now have in the United States something called a food plate. Mm-hmm. This is something I got to be involved in in the government. 
it's completely transparent and it was adopted through a process that involves a lot of consultation. It says basically make half your plate fruits and vegetables, right. that that's recommended. But if people don't want to do that, they don't have to do that. So that's a nudge that is uh, thought to be. And I think it is consistent with people's interests and values, uh, but it also preserves freedom of choice and there's nothing manipulative about it. Well, there were so some... too when you buy... Oh, go Sorry. ahead. No, go ahead. When you buy a car, uh, you've got a fuel economy label, which will tell you something about the uh, annual fuel costs and also tell you something about the environmental effects. And people like that in across partisan lines. That is, they like the label. They may not want to buy a fuel efficient car, and that's because it fits with what people care about. Now, as I was reading about the nudges, and, and that all makes sense, kind of giving people a guide, a suggestion to something else. But then you also talked about forcing choices, and people people tend to not want to have too many choices. You use the analogy of getting into a cab and the driver asking, what route do you want to take and things like that. So where is the line between we don't mind being nudged, but we don't want to have too many choices? Well, I think the question is whether um, people should be forced to choose or instead permitted to choose. Okay. So, so, so if you're in a cab, um, if if the driver knows how to get to the airport, the driver might just take you there because it's a cab driver who ought to know how to get sure. to the airport <laughs> right. in the best way. Uh, if the cab driver is starting to go or rude or that you don't like, you should certainly have the right to say, I don't like that. So the only point is that there are a lot of things where we uh, like it that the uh, when we buy a, a cell phone, just to make it concrete, they don't ask us a million questions about what you want the settings to be. They give you a bunch of automatic settings, which you can change if you want. If they asked you which settings do you want for the roughly a million things that your cell phone is set to, may not be quite a million, but if there's a lot, you would never get out of the store. Right, exactly. And so for, so for many products, the number of questions that you're asked is less than infinite, and that's because they're thinking, you can choose it if you want, but we're not going to waste your time on this one. And I think there's a big lesson in that about life, where if you're, you're dealing with the Social Security system or the criminal justice system or your hospital, they will... Uh, limit the number of questions they ask you. Uh, I hope not too much, uh, but they will also, across a wide territory, uh, allow you to make choices if you want to, and they'll give you the information or make it easily accessible such that you can make choices if that's what you want to do. And these, how do we tie in then the the choices and the nudges into change? How does that How does that all get wrapped in? Well, I'll give you two examples. Um, there's a program in the United States that both Republicans and Democrats basically like. It makes poor kids eligible for breakfast and lunch, okay. and it's not not especially controversial. And the uh, number of kids who have signed up over the years has been well short of the number of kids who are eligible. Now, a lot of the kids are like eight and nine years old, so they're not going to sign up. The parents have to sign up, but they don't. Mm -hmm. So that's a problem. The the, the meals can save the money, they're healthy, they can have a big impact on the lives of small children and their families. It's not signed up. So what do you do? What what was 
authorized by Congress and what both Republican and Democratic administrations uh, did in response was if the school district knows for sure that they're eligible, they're automatically in. Okay. So they don't have to sign up. And, th- and that uh, means that we've got, you know, in a good year, over 10 million kids who are uh uh, are enjoying these meals, and that can, you know, that's an abstract number, but that's a lot of children. That's major change. And here's another example, my only other one for now, which is the credit card law of uh, 2009, 2010, of that period, which uh, gives people information about late fees and overuse fees, forbids credit card companies from automatically enrolling people in various things that aren't very good for them, but they cost money, and the law kind of uh, comes to terms with those problems. And the study showed that American consumers have saved over $9 billion uh, uh, a year as a result of that uh, set of nudges. And that's big change. So the credit cards company's ability to get money through fine print and uh, hidden characteristics of the contract with the consumers is sharply diminished. Now, that doesn't cure, you know, the problems that many people face meeting their bills, but um, a few dollars a year or $50 a year, that's a good thing. I want to talk to you. We've got to take a real quick break. And I, when we come back, I want to talk to you about partyism because it seems it seems like this is a phenomenon that is getting worse and worse. I want to see if, if you agree with that. And we'll, we'll de- define it for people, tell them where it comes from, how it happens, all of that. Professor Cass Sunstein is my guest. His book, How Change Happens, is available everywhere. Uh, more with the professor in just a moment on 720 WGN. Professor, I want to get into partyism, but I think before we before we talk about partyism, we almost have to talk about group polarization, right? What, can you define what group polarization is? Yes. So a few years ago, I did a little experiment in Colorado where I got people together who were very worried about climate change, and they talked to each other. And the question was, what would they think after they talked to each other? So they started out very worried about climate change. Uh, after they talked to each other, they were terrified about climate change. <laughs> their, the intensity of their fear ratcheted up. And at the same period, I, with collaborators, got a bunch of people in Colorado who really weren't worried about climate change. They were concerned, but not very worried. After they talked to each other, they weren't worried worried at all about climate change. They went uh, dramatically to the political right on climate change. So group polarization is the phenomenon by which people who tend to think the same thing, after they talk to each other, they end up more extreme, more confident, and more unified. And that can be a source of terrible social divisions where people may, on some question like uh, racial justice or some issue like immigration, uh, shoot way to the left or way to the right just because they're talking mostly with people who agree with them. And and these uh, these changes and these moves to one extreme or another – there's statistics to back this up. This is a regular thing. It's not just a one-off where, in, if, for example, your experiment, if you had talked to groups in other places around the country that were very worried about climate change, statistically, the reaction probably would have been the same, correct? 
Oh yeah, it's a regularity. So if it's been, been done in France, if people in France are kind of suspicious of the United States and don't trust its intentions with respect to foreign aid, after they talk to each other, they are really suspicious of the United States and think it can't be trusted at all. If people are risk-taking in business school and they get to talk to each other, after they do, they end up being very, very risk-taking. So it's a, it's a regularity. It's been demonstrated in uh, countless studies. It doesn't all always happen, but it is what usually happens. And there's something uh, that comes in with group polarization, the outrage heuristic. And a heuristic is a problem solving that it's not always a practical method. It's not always actually the best method of solving. But people use, you know, oh, this is how common sense would dictate. What's the outrage heuristic? Okay, so suppose you're thinking about how much someone should be punished. Um People typically ask, how outraged am I? And that is the uh, determinant of how much punishment they want to provide. Now, that's not the worst thing to do because punishment surely has a lot to do with outrage. But you might be really mad at someone, uh, and if you punish them, it might be that it's not going to do anybody any good except make you feel better. Or it may be that you're not terribly outraged about the conduct because the thing doesn't bother you so much. But it might be the underlying conduct that doesn't bother you so much is, let's say, polluting a lot of waters. And you might stop to think, well, I'm not that upset, but there are a lot of people who are going to have unsafe drinking water, a lot of fish who are going to die. And that is a reason for deterring the conduct. So the fact that we have this immediate, uh, intense kind of red color before our eyes or not, uh, ought not to be the determinant of how much punishment there is. Okay, now let's move into partyism, because uh, in in the country today, the lines seem to be drawn firmer than they ever were. So for those who aren't sure, what exactly is partyism and what causes it? Yeah, so partyism kind of a made-up term, but uh, let's go with it. You know, uh, I, I, like I feel it. I can go with it because I made it up, so I'll go with it. Uh, the, the term is uh, uh, that if you have an intense and immediate negative feeling towards people of the opposing political party, so obviously it's a play on racism and sexism, right. and it, it's meant as that because in, in some research, people who are – you know, a little bit bigoted against people of certain skin colors. They are a lot bigoted against people of certain political parties. In you know, 1960 or so, hardly anyone would be upset if their child married someone of a different political party. You know, my parents sure. had a Republican dad, a Democratic mom. Neither would care whether their children married a Democrat or Republican. That just wouldn't occur to them. But uh, now, basically, uh, somewhere between uh, a third and a half of Republicans and Democrats uh, would be very upset if their child married someone of a different political party. That's a massive social change. And it is replicated by data suggesting that both Democrats and Republicans have a very quick hostile reaction to people who have a different uh, different political party as their preferred party. And, you know, it's it's a little wild to think that people would be as intensely negative about someone with a political, different political position, their fellow citizens, after all, as old-style racism. But it has uh, something very much in common with that. Well, now, this this is obviously a change. So I know we talked about tipping points before, 
is there is there a point we can identify where this change began to happen, where it where it did take hold? Is it recent, or is this something that's very recent, or in the last couple of decades? It's it's definitely the last couple of decades. So nothing like this has been observed or cataloged at any point in American history, though it's possible. Uh, I'd be surprised if there wasn't something like it in the Civil War period. Uh, but it, since data has been collected, which is for many decades now, uh, this has not been observed. Um, it seems to be growing. Every five years is a little higher. Um, what's caused it is uh, disputed. We don't have a clear account. Uh, social media probably are a contributor where people are able to identify uh, themselves much more um, acutely as I am a Democrat or I am a Republican. And the fierceness of political campaigning, which seems to have ratcheted up um, uh, in some ways, at least since the 1960s, though it is fierce occasionally then also, the fierceness of the, and maybe the combination of fierceness and pervasiveness. So it's in your face all the time that right. the other side, you know, lock them up. And there is a tendency, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, I think you should find this alarming, of uh, lock them up as the kind of music. In some cases, it's the actual text, but the text or the music of the uh, of both parties, more on the Republican side, but, but we hear it some on the Democratic side. Now, we only have a couple minutes, but what are the consequences of this? There's consequences, obviously, for the government, but it, it, it comes down to daily life as well. Yeah, so in uh, let's talk about daily life. I have some data suggesting, to my astonishment, that if people are trying to solve you know, tasks that have nothing to do with politics, they will be more likely to trust and rely on people who share their political convictions. So if you want to make money, uh, you have two, in, two investment advisors. One is, shares your political views, one doesn't. And the one who doesn't is really better and has a better track record, and you've learned that. A lot of people are still going to go with the person who shares their political views. So even now, if it's not the in their own best interest, they will still pick party over their, their best interest. Yes, there's evidence of that. And that's, you know, in a way you can understand that if you're going to be interacting with the person, you might want them to be kind of a social friend a little bit as well sure. as a moneymaker. But the data suggests that people will just go with their preferred political party person. It might be a doctor, might be a engineer, might be a, a lawyer, even if it's against their interest in terms of what they care about. And that I'm very confident, though I don't have data, we, we would not have observed in the 1970s wow. or 1950s. And then, so it's spilling over into ordinary life. That's your point. In terms of government, I, I saw it close up. I worked in Washington full-time for four years, and I worked um, part-time uh, until relatively recently. I'm there a lot. And you can see the capacity of people to uh, reach agreements on things which they privately like is badly compromised because Republicans might think under President Obama it's a good idea, but it's his idea, right. and I, I can't support his idea. 
uh, I'll get voted out or uh, I'll look like an idiot. And Democrats sometimes think under Republican leadership, I, I can't give them a nickel because uh, they're not going to do that to me. Yeah. So even if, for me, and even if they have an idea that I like, uh, they'll claim credit or I'll look weak. And so I'm just going to pose it. And that makes the capacity of the national legislature to solve problems much weaker, and it also puts a lot of pressure on the executive branch, whether it's Trump or Obama, to act unilaterally. Well, it's a fascinating book, and it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Professor Cass Sunstein has been my guest. The book, How Change Happens, you can find it everywhere. Professor, thanks for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks to you. Take care. That is, uh, again, Professor Cass Sunstein and the book, How Change Happens. So pick that up wherever uh, books are sold. All right, on the other side of the news, oh, Roger, you're going to love this. We're going to get into the whole Star Wars conversation. We know how to do uh, but the the cast the cast of the Cantina cast the hosts Ooh. of the Cantina cast a widely uh, known and very well respected Star Wars podcast nice. they have been at the Star Wars celebration all weekend I don't know if they're wearing helmets uh, are they coming in on a uh, X wing fighter what are they flying in on land speeder land speeder I like those better those are the flat ones yeah they were going to take a tauntaun but then it stopped snowing stop snowing that's what we talked about earlier no need for a tauntaun once it's uh, once the weather clears up. Yeah, a wampa did follow him up in the elevator, but I, I made it go away. Are there any stormtroopers in the building? Not to my knowledge. Oh, Is there it's a not Sith storming here? anymore. No so. Sith. No Sith. Well, I'm, Roger, I'm using up all my I'm using up all my knowledge before we even get the guests. Save some the of it, will you? No, You'll need listen, it. no, I don't know. I don't know. I'm gonna, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna just go. Uh, I'm gonna go to the dark side with Eddie and the cruisers. I don't think that's Ooh, the same. Yeah, see? That was a good I, one. I blended uh, two worlds collide. Yes, you it's did. It's frightening. All right, let's do this, and then then we'll talk Star Wars. Are you a Star Wars fan? Are you excited? Because Episode Nine, the trailer, the teaser trailer came out. I am, because I knew Billy D. Williams. And I was like, ooh, all right. Going to get me some Cole 45 and watch me some Star Wars. Uh, we'll talk all about Star Wars on the other side of the news. The Steve Cochran Show celebrates the most valuable person on the planet weekday mornings at 720 on 720 WGN Chicago. Smart speaker users just say play WGN radio on TuneIn and the machines, Star Wars or otherwise. We'll do the rest. The news is sponsored by Lindemann Chimney and Fireplace. It is 6 o'clock. Here's Roger Bett.